Father, we come to you in Jesus' name because you are a gracious God. You're the God of might and miracle, the God of passion and strength, the God who hears our prayer, the God who answers our prayer, the God who understands who we are to be more than we yet probably understand ourselves. And yet you're patient with, with us in, as we seek to discover all that you want us to be. And sometimes, Father, we wander off the trail and yet you nudge us back in your mercy. And Father, I pray that you will bless us this morning through the word of God, that you will speak to hearts. You know where each of us is individually this morning. And I pray that each person will experience a special touch from you today. And Father, that we will be encouraged, that we will be the men and women that you have called us to be, to those that are near, to those that are far, and in ways that maybe we don't even yet perceive. Father, I ask that throughout our Sunday school this morning, your hand of blessing would be upon every class and upon the services yet to transpire this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the book of Deuteronomy, there are numerous laws and teachings given in the passages that are found between the 21st and the 25th chapters of Deuteronomy. We discover that many of the civil and moral laws are given there. Some of them are rep repetitions of laws that were given in Exodus or Leviticus. Some are new. Some of them are laws that we would have a lot of difficulty with uh, today if we were to have to live by them. They deal with domestic relations and, and things that I think from our perspective today are a little bit difficult to understand in terms of what their significant was, significance was at that particular time. In the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy, we have a whole chapter dedicated to the response that the Jews were to give, the Israelites were to give, when they finally were in the land and the land was conquered. In that chapter, we're told that they were to give first fruits twice for him. And the gift of the first fruits was, was an expression of their faith and of their love and of their commitment and of their thankfulness that they were finally in the land. And then in the third year, they were to uh, bring a tithe of all that they had. And this too was not to be, of course, the last of the tithes, uh, but sort of the, the inaugural time of commitment of all that they had to the Lord in a tithe on a regular basis. And, and the passages of Scripture there tell us that the tithe was to be given out to the poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, the ill, those that uh, were suffering in the land. And it was through this that God would provide for these. And all of this was to be done as an expression of their, of their heartfelt love for God and of their gratefulness that God had brought them into the land, the land of promise, that promise which had been made to Abraham, you know, half a millennium before, uh, now being a reality, and they being the generation that experienced the joy of, of that actual occupation of the land. And, and the result was that they were to express their love for God and their commitment to Him in a tangible way. And, you know, that's really one of the reasons why God ha requires of us or urges us as His followers to give of our resources because by a tangible means we can express our love and commitment to Him. Obviously it wasn't because God has to have money because <laughs> He's the God of the universe. He's got everything in the universe. He can do whatever He wants. But He allows us to participate in what He's doing in a, in a very real way. 
And so the offering of the first fruits in the first year and then the third year helped to set the tone and the pace for a consistent life in God in the subsequent generations. Chapters 27 through 34, which are the last chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, tell us of the final days of the man Moses. And these chapters record in greatest detail not only what Moses went through in those final days, sometimes by implication, but what was his final message to the people? Can you put yourself into the sandals of Moses and think about the fact you've been with these people for 40 years, you've led them through thick and thin, a whole lot more thin than thick, it seemed like, and you've been the spokesman and, and you've seen the tragedies that come the way and you are going to leave now. God is going to take you home. And of course, for one thing, it, it required of Moses a great expression of faith because Moses had to believe that God was able to take care of these people even without him. You know, sometimes we may not always be sure. Can, can God really handle this if he doesn't have me to do it through? <laughs> I don't know, Lord. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he can do it. But, but Moses had a heart for these people. He was their father uh, spiritually. And in spite of the fact that there were times that, that he was ready to throw them off the nearest bluff, he is the one, of course, who stood between them and God and said, whoa, Lord, if you wipe them out, what will all the other nations think? And, and you know, he had compassion for these people. And so what we find in these last chapters are beautiful expressions of Moses urging these people to latch on to God in obedience. And it almost becomes repetition. Well, it does become repetition, repetitious as you go through these chapters. And, and he keeps telling them to obey the Lord your God with all your whole your soul, your strength, your might, your heart, and, and to walk in obedience to his word. I'd like to read the 27th chapter beginning the first eight verses this morning. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you shall cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over in order that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord your God, the, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall bind, build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on these stones the words of this law very distinctly. Israel was poised, ready to cross Jordan and to enter the land. They had tasted of conquest on the east side as they had captured the kingdoms of Sion and Og. And they're just about to experience the success that God was going to give them in conquering the whole land of Canaan and beginning the settlement. And Moses knew that as the success came and as they began to settle down or were poised to begin to settle down, that that would be a critical moment in their history for them to renew their covenant to the Lord. They have penetrated to the heart of the land. And now, renew your commitment to the Lord. 
And as you, as you notice from what I read there this morning, that it was to be done with elaborate ceremony. And the reason, of course, for elaborate ceremony, almost always in the scripture, was so that they would not forget. So that they would not forget. You know, God could have very, very quietly given Moses the law on the top of Mount Sinai with no signs and wonders, no smoke or fire, no thundering, no trembling mountain, just peaceful sunny day. Moses goes up there, gets the law, comes back down. But God didn't choose to do that. God wanted them to remember Sinai just as the church was to remember Pentecost. I mean, it was a major display of, of God's power and of, and of his presence. And God does that, or has at least in the scripture periodically done that, uh, to drive home the point. Do not forget what I have said to you this day. What is significant about this is the site that this celebration was to take place was in the heart of the land, heart of the land of Israel, on the exact spot where Abraham built his first altar to the Lord in Canaan nearly 500 years before. We read from Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. On the site, on the very site, where Abraham had built an altar to the Lord, after the Lord had appeared to him and said, uh, Abraham, to you, to your descendants, I will give this land. God asked the Israelites, those promised descendants, the very people God was speaking of when he spoke to Abraham 500 years before, were the people now receiving the word from Moses. And they were to go to that site and think back to their father, their ancestor Abraham, and remember the vision that he had been given, the altar that he had built. And they were there at that site to renew their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not a God of formality and uh, all kinds of elaborate ritual for the sake of formality or elaborate ritual. What God introduces, God introduces so that people will not forget. Most of us have probably recognized by now in our life that something that comes to us through several senses tends to make more of an impression upon us than something that we've only sensed by one, imp one sense. You know, if it comes through the eye gate, comes through the ear gate, comes through the, through the nostrils and whatever else, we, we tend to remember things. And probably all of you can remember things from childhood where you had this experience and it just flooded over you. And you can remember that experience more than maybe many other experiences in your life. And so that's what God does. He wants them to renew their allegiance here on that very spot so they not only have the historical connection to remember, but to do it in an elaborate way so that they and their children will remember this moment. And if, if when the kids grow up, they think, why did we do that? You know, I remember this great ceremony. Dad, why did we do that? And, and Dad can then say it was because we were commemorating the vision that God had gave, given to Abraham on this very site 500 years before. Shechem lies in a saddle. 
between the two mountains of Ebal and Gerizim. These two peaks are about 3,000 feet high. They are adjacent to each other, and, and the one comes down, and there's this little valley, and then it goes up onto the other one. It's in that valley, in that saddle, between those two mountains, that they were to carry out this ceremony. It's a natural amphitheater. When we were there, uh, the guide pointed out the fact that if you set up in just a certain way, voice can be heard well up on both mountains from the saddle in between. And so it was a great place to carry out a, a program like this with hundreds of thousands of people being involved. The Levites were to stand in the bottom in the canyon in between. And two groups of Israelites were to be arranged on the two mountains to the north and to the south of the little valley there and carry out the ceremony that God had outlined through Moses. We're told that they were to erect large stones on Mount Ebal, which is the northern mountain. And they were to cover these stones with plaster. And then they were to write the law, the laws of Deuteronomy, on that plaster. So it would be a living memorial. So that every time someone passed there, they'd see the stones and be reminded of the fact that they had inherited the land because it had been promised to their ancestor Abraham and they are the recipients of this land and, and they are the blessed ones. It's, it's kind of a sign of the fact that for you and for me, it's kind of good to have little memorials along the way in our Christian walk. The days that we can remember back to when we made a special commitment or dedication to the Lord for some thing or some other, you know, some kind of a commitment. And, and this kind of becomes like rungs in a ladder as we move through our Christian life. We're told that these stones were to be a silent witness in perpetuity of the covenant that was made that day or renewed that day. We're told in addition they were to build an altar there. And the altar was to be made of unhewn stones, just stones brought and stacked together. And there an offering was to be made. Burnt offerings and peace offerings were to be made to, to the Lord. And then they were to culminate the day with rejoicing and feasting in the Lord. Imagine what kind of an impression this would make on the younger generation. Wow, what was the Lord doing? Reading on in Deuteronomy 27, beginning at verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day... You have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Moses also charged the people that on that, on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And... For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice. Well, I'll pick up with verse 14 when I want to read on down to, through the rest of it there. But let me just say something about the first 9 through 13 first. There was a tangible reinforcement to be made of the renewal of the covenant. And so Moses ordered that six of the tribes, and they're listed for us here, would stand on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, and six of the tribes would stand on the slopes of Mount Ebal. 
And in between the two would stand the Levites, arrayed through the saddle, through the valley there between the two mountains. The six tribes that were on Mount Gerizim would represent the blessings that were to be pronounced that day. And the six tribes that stood on Mount Ebal were to represent the curses that would be spoken that day for those who were in disobedience to the Lord. And whenever the, the Levites would cry out the blessings, those on Mount Gerizim were to say, Amen. you imagine it? Thousands of voices. Amen. And when they cried out the curses, those on Mount Ebal would cry out, Amen. So be it, Lord. They were, of course, voicing their agreement. Voicing their agreement that the blessings belong to them because of obedience and curses belong to them if they were disobedient. They were affirming their punishment, if you will, or their judgment if they chose to be disobedient. Let me read on the verses I started a minute ago. Verse 14. It's quite a list here. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts justice, do an alien, orphan and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife, because he uncover, has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with any animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Nasty list. This, of course, is not an exhaustive list, nor is the total record of all that they were to say, because it's quite implied, and we'll read the passage in, in Joshua in a minute, that there would be read out or spoken out the blessings to which all men would be given, as well as the cursings. But of course here in this passage, we just have kind of a short list of some of the curses. Uh, throughout the 28th chapter of uh, Deuteronomy, you have a very long list of curses as well as a list of blessings. This, of course, would make it very obvious to absolutely everyone exactly what God expected of his people and exactly what was sin and exactly what would be the the, the right condemnation that would fall upon those persons who committed these sins. And of course, what you find as you go through these passages is that the way by which these sins would be avoided was to commit oneself, heart, soul, mind, and body to the Lord God in love and obedience. And this just keeps being repeated over and over again in these final messages that Moses gives, gives to, his, to his people. You know, you look at this long list and you think, wow, man, I mean, you have to put this big long list on the wall and check it off every day, make sure you didn't do any of those things. No, 
if you're walking in the Lord and walking in the light of His love and in, in, in the honesty of His Word, you don't have to worry about this list because His Spirit will keep you straight and, and on the straight and narrow path. But they were to hear these echoed across the canyon and to yell back, Amen, so that no one would have any doubt about what is the truth and what is the law of God. They can't say, well, I didn't know. Right. You didn't know. What is very interesting about this is that later, when the Jews and Samaritans became enemies of each other, that the Samaritans would claim that the mountain of blessing, Mount Gerizim, was Mount Moriah. And that being Mount Moriah, it was the true side of the temple. And therefore, they would build a temple up there. And that, they said, was the true temple. And the one in Jerusalem was the false temple. You know the story, and I won't read the story to you, but in John chapter 4, as Jesus was passing through Samaria, he stopped at the well of Sychar, which is right there at the base of the mountains. And from the two mountains, you can see Ebal to the north and Gerizim to the south. And while he was there, a woman came out from the city, and he asked of her a drink, and he got into a conversation with her, as you know. And in the 20th verse, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she points to Mount Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. See, by Jesus' day, the gulf between the Samaritans and the Jews was very wide. And they referred to each other as you people. Of course, the Jews referred to the Samaritans as dogs. And, I, I mean, this illustration of what is the mountain of worship is really clear to her. This is our mountain. You say it's down in Jerusalem. And, of course, Jesus' retort to her is one of the great uh, statements of all Scripture. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Neither is it necessarily in that mountain or this mountain, not a physical location, but in our hearts we worship him in spirit and in truth. What Moses had commanded Joshua uh, to, to Israel was executed by Joshua. And let me just skip ahead and read at the end of the eighth chapter of Joshua how this was actually carried out. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. We read these words. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Joshua was God's choice to replace Moses, and he was an excellent choice. 
because Joshua sought to do exactly what the Lord would have him to do and to walk in obedience to the law of Moses and to carry on. You could be sure that when Joshua was required to take over, and when we get to the first part of Joshua, we'll note this, but you know, I, I don't think Joshua felt adequate at all. I, what would you feel like? You know, if you were asked to take over from Moses, <laughs> you know, that's almost like being asked to take over from God himself in many people's view. I mean, Moses was viewed almost as if, as if he were divine by many. I mean, it was just human, but nevertheless, he was a man that God used mightily. The 28th chapter of Deuteronomy is a very long chapter. It's a long dissertation on the inevitable consequences, inevitable consequences of obedience and disobedience to the Word of God. And one of the phrases that we're going to read, which is so powerful, to me anyway, is that the Scripture tells us in these passages that blessings for the, for the obedient people, blessings will overtake you. And for the disobedient cursings will overtake you. The same picture. And so for those who were disobedient as they would be washed over with a flood of curse, so the obedient would be washed over with a flood of blessing. We have a song, mercy drops round us are falling but for the showers we plead. This is talking about floods. Floods of blessing. The details are spelled out in this chapter so that no one will be in any quandary as to why things were happening to them as they were happening to them. Well, let's read the first part of chapter 28. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. Blessed shall, be, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to do. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you. If you will keep his commandments, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth shall see you that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beast and the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to the fa your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above and you shall not be beneath. If you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully 
And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. This is a wonderful picture. What you have here is a veritable utopia on earth that God would give his people if they would obey. If they would obey. Constantly the contingent factor is there if they will obey. God's blessing, we find it over and over again in Scripture, God's blessings are conditional. Simply being called God's people does not mean that automatically we have a right to God's blessing. His blessings are conditional. They're based upon our commitment and our obedience. And the degree of our commitment and the degree of our obedience enhances the degree of the blessing. You'll notice as I highlighted here in verse 2, the blessings of God would literally overtake them, overwhelm them. This whoosh, what am I going to do with all these blessings? Everything is prospering. Bumper crops, bumper herds, bumper family. In our day, of course, we don't usually consider a bumper family all that great, but in those days, uh, many, many do. But uh, in those days, that was a sign of God's blessing. The more children you had, the more obvious it was that was God was blessing you. Every person, every animal, every endeavor, every place was to be blessed. And every nation of the world would look upon them and say, wow, they worship the true and the living God. Unfortunately, the lion's share of this chapter deals with the consequences of disobedience. This chapter contains 14 verses of blessings and 54 verses of cursing. For every verse of encouragement, there were four verses of warning. What does that tell us? That we're quick to pick up on the blessing. Slow to hear about the warnings of disobedience. How many times do you have to tell a child, please go ahead, have some candy. <laughs> How many times do you have to tell them, no, 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 no? <laughs> That's human nature. You have intimate detail here in this chapter of the curses that would come upon Israel, the disasters. And as you read through that list, it almost makes our problems look like blessings in, in comparison. I'm not going to read all those verses, but I think I'll read a few just so we get a little bit of an inkling of what hell on earth is like. Turn to verses 22 and 23. Now this is if they were disobedient, chased after other gods and did not love the Lord their God or serve him or listen to his word. The Lord will smite you with consumption and fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat, with the sword, with blight, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. Verse 26, your carcasses shall be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Verse 28, the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart, and you shall grope at noon as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be oppressed and robbed continually, and none will save you. Verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in lack of all things. He will put an iron yoke on your neck, 
and he will until he has destroyed you. And then the end of the chapter at verse 64. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and you shall serve other gods, wood, stone, which your fathers have not known. And among those nations you shall find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, Would that it were evening. In the evening you will say, Would that it were morning. Because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and the sight of your eyes which you shall see. And the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. By the way which, about which I spoke to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall offer yourselves for, for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. You imagine? How low can it be that you offer yourself for a slave and still no one wants you? That's the ultimate crushing of a human being into the ground. It's powerfully clear, powerfully clear from this chapter that the comfort of God's people is not his primary concern. His primary concern is not that we are comfortable. His primary concern is that we are obedient. And if that means making us uncomfortable, he will do it. He will not hesitate to do it. And I'm not saying that because you might be uncomfortable at a given moment that you're disobedient. Because even the obedient ones suffer, as Jesus had said, in this life you will have tribulation. God will go to any extreme to wake up his people from spiritual suicide. God makes no empty threats. He knows that our hearts are desperately wicked, and unless we are faced with the consequences of our sin, we will not repent, nor will we seek his, seek his strength to walk in righteousness, because we cannot walk in righteousness in our own strength. We can only do so in his strength. And I think, you know, that in eternity, we're going to look back in our lives and we're going to say, those hard times were the greatest time of blessing. And those comfortable times were not all that great a blessing for us in the long run. Because it's in the hard times that we really grow. And it's in our discomfort that we seek the Lord. And so he's not hesitant to allow that to come. And even if we are walking in obedience, God allows hard times to come to push us a little further along to make us stronger, to sharpen the flint a little more, or the, the blade, to, to make us more effective. Well, I'm going to have to stop here so that we have time to pray. So as I explained to you before, I, I need to be over at the college by 11. So next Sunday, we'll pick up with chapter 29.